We'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 10 to 17. It says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you may, per you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Now is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of, household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Hey, sure, it's a bit sappy. I like sappy. What's wrong with a bit of sap? And it really does capture the beauty of loyalty, doesn't it? Loyalty is a defender of the weak. With people who are loyal to you, you are never alone. Can you think about the people in your life who really have been most loyal to you? They're really precious, aren't they? There aren't many of them. They defended you when you were weak. They stood right next to you when you were most alone. Loyalty is a really beautiful thing. One of my favourite moments in all the Harry Potter books is this particular moment when a character is trying to draw Harry away from Albus Dumbledore and into his camp. And Harry refuses to betray, to be disloyal to his mentor. And the character says to him, so you're Dumbledore's man through and through, are you? And Harry says, yeah, I'm Dumbledore's man, through and through. Down in the U tables, which character was it? Rufus Scrimgeour, look at that, well done. There's something beautiful about that moment. And I think the thing about loyalty is you never actually know it's there until it's put to the test. See, in the good times of life, you can't tell which people are actually loyal to you. It's only when someone challenges that loyalty. It's only when someone has to side with you in the face of someone else's anger. That's when you see loyalty, isn't it? Loyalty is never actually seen until it's put to the test. But when it is put to the test, and when it endures, a loyal friend is just about the most precious thing in the world. And also just about the most destructive thing in the world. Because sometimes loyalty can lead us to do terrible, terrible things, can't it? Loyalty can lead us to ignore the truth. So I know that this person is not the best qualified person for the job, but they're my friend. I've got to have their back. And so I'll give them the job over and above someone else. I know that my friend did the wrong thing here. They shouldn't have done what they did. And the right thing to do would actually be to tell whoever is in charge to expose them, but I can't. I've got to have their back. Why weren't pedophile priests 
in the Anglican and Catholic churches ever exposed by their peers because of loyalty. This person's my friend, I can't expose them, we'll just move them on. Loyalty can be one of the most beautiful things in the world and also one of the most destructive things in the world. And this morning, we're going to see how it was destroying the Corinthian church. We're going to see that it was literally tearing it apart. Have a look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there may be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. See, Paul, he appeals with the Corinthians that they'll agree with each other, and see that word divisions, that there'll be no divisions among you, that's the word schism, or literally, tearing. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 9, when He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. See, Paul's concern here is, this Corinthian church is being torn apart, ripped down the centre like a garment. So how? Why? What's going on here? Well, look at the next verse, verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. The Corinthians were being torn apart by factions. So there's a group that follows Paul, and there's another group that follows Apollos, and another group that follows Cephas, which is the name for Peter, that's Peter's other name, and another group which claims to follow Christ. They're trumping everyone else. And the language they're using is really interesting. It's the language of loyalty. Literally what they're saying is, I belong to Paul. I am of Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Peter. I'm Dumbledore's man, is what they're saying. I'm Paul's woman. I'm Peter's man. I'm an Apollos woman. I'm in his camp. I owe that person my allegiance, because loyalty is a kind of ownership, isn't it? Loyalty puts me in this position where I owe you something. I owe you my allegiance. And all of these Corinthians, they all felt loyal, they all pledged their, le their allegiance to the different leaders. Now, I should say, I don't think the leaders were at fault here. I don't think the leaders were the one causing it, I, I don't think it was deliberate. So, Peter and Paul and Apollos, they're all really godly men. But while they were away, the Corinthians were claiming this loyalty to each of those leaders over and above the others, they were lining up behind them. And it seems like baptism, was one of the things that was confusing the issue. So, Paul mentions baptism in verses 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17, which is actually almost half the number of times baptism is mentioned outside the Gospels and Acts. It's half the number of times it's, meant it's mentioned in the letters. Because when you think about it, baptism is an incredible sign of allegiance. It's a sign of loyalty. Jesus makes it that in Matthew 28, doesn't He? So, Jesus comes to His Apostles, His disciples and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Baptism 
is a public display of your allegiance to Jesus. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and you are baptized into His name, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You take their name for yourself. And it's a sign that you're accepting their authority over you, that you're becoming one of Jesus' disciples. You're committing yourself to obeying Jesus' teaching. Baptism is a public declaration of your allegiance to Jesus. And that's actually how we catched it a few weeks ago, wasn't it? If you were here on Good Friday, we did a bunch of baptisms in our church, a bunch of people were baptised, and they were all asked three questions. One, have you turned from your rebellion against God? Two, do you trust in Jesus' death for the forgiveness of your sins? Three, will you seek to live your life under Jesus' rule and for His glory? All three of those sentences really are about where is your loyalty? Is your loyalty? Will you seek to live your life under Jesus' authority and for His glory? And each person who was being baptized publicly declared in front of their friends and their family their allegiance to Jesus by saying yes. Now, everyone who did it that day, this is, we're going off in a little aside for a moment, everyone who did it that day was essentially an adult, weren't they? They had an adult kind of faith. So some of them were teenagers, but they had an adult kind of faith. And most of the time, when people get baptized in our church, they do, as, do it as adults or teenagers because of this idea of making a statement of allegiance to Jesus. But occasionally in our church, we will also baptize babies as well. It doesn't actually happen all that often, maybe once or twice a year, if that, but we're actually happy to baptize babies. At that point, you might ask, but how can that work? How can a baby make an allegiance to Jesus? A baby can't even talk. But if you're a parent, you speak on behalf of your children all the time, don't you? You act and make decisions on behalf of your children all the time, the kind of values you're going to have as a family, the places you go, the things you're going to do, the way you're going to spend time and money as a family. Parents always speak and act on behalf of their kids. And in the Bible, the role of parents is to raise their children in the teaching and the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. I guess one way of thinking about it is, if you're a parent, do you see your children as little Christians or little non-Christians? Do you see your baby, your child, as a little Christian that you're trying to raise in the teaching and instruction of the Lord, or are they a little non-Christian that you're seeking to see converted? If you see your child as a little non-Christian, then don't get them baptised. Because what you're saying is they're not yet part of the family of God. But if you see your child as a little Christian, then it, it makes sense to baptise them. You don't have to. We, we didn't actually baptise any of our children. We're letting them do it as they get older. But, so you don't have to, but you can. So our church's view is even though adult baptism seems to be the most obvious way forward, because then the person can make the statement of allegiance for themselves, it's perfectly reasonable for a parent to claim allegiance on behalf of their child. Now, of course, at each point, the child's then going to have to reaffirm that decision for themselves about whether or not they're going to follow Jesus. But often you'll hear Christian kids say, well, yeah, I guess I was always a Christian. Oh, there was a key moment at a camp 
when I took it on for myself, but I kind of always trusted Jesus. And that's fantastic when kids say that. And so it's perfectly fine for a parent to make that statement of allegiance for their child, knowing that they'll confirm it later. And so we're happy enough to baptise babies or wait. The age is not the key thing. It's the allegiance. That's why Paul says, have a look in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. That is, the model of baptism is actually far less important than the message that's preached, than who their allegiance is to. That is, a church that agrees with you on baptism, but gets the gospel wrong, that's a church you have to leave. A church that disagrees with you on baptism, but gets the gospel right, well, you can work with that church. There's a way forward there. So that's baptism. I'm baptised in Jesus' name. I'm Jesus man or I'm Jesus woman, I'm Jesus teenager, it's a declaration of loyalty. And so it's not hard to imagine people becoming confused about who that loyalty is to, is it? It's not hard to imagine my allegiance to Jesus slurping over onto the person who baptised me. So Apollos baptises me and even though he does it in Jesus' name, I feel this allegiance to Apollos because he's been the one who taught me the gospel. He's the one who explained it to me. It was so crucial in my Christian life and his hands were the ones that put me under the water. I'm an Apollos person. It seems as if that's what was happening in Corinth. All these different people with loyalty to all these different leaders and it was tearing their church apart. Paul says, you're being ripped to bits. Now, what's Paul going to do about this? How is Paul going to deal with this issue? Well, he asks, a, he asks a series of really key questions that drive to the absolute heart of loyalty. They show us very clearly where our loyalty lies. So look at the next verse, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? See, Paul asks these three piercing questions, all short, and they drive to the heart of loyalty. He starts by asking, is Christ divided? And, and it's a play on words. The Corinthian church is, is torn. The Corinthian church is being ripped to bits, and Paul says, is Jesus in bits? Is Jesus torn to pieces? And of course, the answer is no. Jesus is whole. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's got a body. He's sitting in heaven. Jesus isn't divided, and so His people shouldn't be. Remember last week, we saw the idea that the church, Christians, are united with Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul said, God has called us into fellowship, this joining with Jesus. We have His Spirit, we have His blood, we'll share His future, we're all joined to Jesus. And Paul says, so if Jesus isn't divided, why would you be, if you're joined to Him? The next question is, was Paul crucified for you? Who do you owe your salvation to? Who paid for your sins? Who bore God's wrath on the cross for you? Was it Paul? Was it Peter? Was it Apollos? Of course not, it was Jesus. Jesus is the one who was crucified for you, and so Jesus is the one you owe your allegiance to. Jesus is the one you owe your eternity to, not Peter. 
Peter, Paul, Apollos, all of us owe our allegiance to Jesus, the only person who was crucified in our place. The third question Paul asks is, were you baptised into the name of Paul? And we've already seen the answer is no. Jesus commanded people to baptise into the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're baptised in Jesus' name, not Paul's. I mean, Paul may baptise people, but he's just Jesus' servant. He's just the one baptising, not the one into whose name people are baptised. So, do you see what Paul's doing in verse 13? He's asking these three very short, very piercing questions to show us in the clearest possible way our loyalty is to Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus isn't divided. There's not multiple bits of Jesus all over the place, so the church shouldn't be divided either. Jesus is the one who was crucified for us. You owe your salvation and your allegiance to Him alone. And Jesus is the one whose name we're baptised into. He is the one who joins us all together. And so there's only one person we're truly loyal to, and that's Jesus. That's why Paul's practice was not to baptise people because of the danger of divided loyalties. So look in the next verse, verse 14, he says, I thank my God, or I thank God, that I didn't baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptised in my name. Oh, yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. Now, is Paul saying baptism is a bad thing there? Of course not. Uh, baptism can't be a bad thing if Jesus commanded us to do it. It's just that Paul recognises baptism can be a confusing thing. If Paul's hand is the one that dunks me into the water, it's too easy for my allegiance to slide from Jesus onto Paul. And so Paul says he's glad he didn't baptise anyone except Crispus and Gaius. Oh, and Stephanus, and he, he doesn't remember if he baptised anyone else. That last bit sounds a bit dicey, doesn't it? Almost as if Paul's having a convenient memory lapse. You know when politicians will sometimes say that they don't recall saying that lie that they've been caught in. Or, I have no recollection of ever having that meal with that shady underworld figure. Plausible deniability is what it's called. Is that what Paul's doing here? I don't recall if I baptised anyone else. Now, it's, it's, to be honest, it's just the way the Greek language worked. What Paul's saying is, to the best of my memory, I didn't baptise anyone except Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus's household. Because he doesn't want anyone's allegiance to slide from Christ to himself. And Paul's a great model for us here, isn't he? In church, we never want to do anything that will draw people's allegiance away from Christ and onto us. Because it can happen really, really easily. So, for instance, we can be tempted to feel a loyalty to our church when other people criticise it. Our church occasionally gets criticised around Newcastle, often by other Christians. And we'll be tempted to feel defensive. We can feel our loyalty to our church being tested. Can I say, don't bother. When you hear people criticise our church, just say to them, you know, you might be right. You might not be. Can I encourage you to go and take it up with our leaders and get to the truth? That is, have more loyalty to the truth than you ever have to Hunter Bible Church. Sometimes, though, we'll, we'll feel a loyalty to the ministry that we're involved with in church. So, you're part of the, the youth ministry. So, of course, you're going to feel an allegiance to youth. 
or you're in the band and of course you want the music to be great or you're in the membership team and you run the Connect series and we actually really want people to be passionate about the ministries they're involved in, don't, don't they? I mean, I really want our youth team to be passionate about youth because I want them to see the importance of youth. They're raising up the next generation of Christians is going to take the gospel to Newey and Lake Mac. That's worth getting excited about. I want our youth team to be absolutely passionate. I want our bands to be excited because they're, they're helping us to praise the living God and we're going to be doing that for all eternity. If they can't get excited about doing it now, we're in real trouble in eternity, aren't we? I want the people who run the Connect series to be absolutely passionate about the Connect series because they're helping people to find a home in Jesus' family. So many people who join our church come from really hard church experiences and we want them to be loved as they join our church. It's right that we're really passionate and loyal to the ministries we're involved in because they're actually all part of building Jesus' kingdom, otherwise we wouldn't do them. But what happens when you're the team leader or even a team member and someone on your team gets asked to join another team? That person you recruited and you've trained, and you've nurtured, and you've been giving them a little bit more responsibility in youth, and then a little bit more, and then they get asked to be a growth group leader, or a band leader. So tempting to feel frustrated, isn't it? And to complain about that other team, and to hold tightly to our team members. Don't go over there. We need you over here. Mission Mission is nowhere near as important as magnification. We won't be doing mission in heaven. No non-Christians to evangelize there. Stay in the magnification team. Be in the band. There won't be a maturity team in heaven either, by the way. We'll all be mature, just in case you're wondering. That is, we can call people to be more loyal to our team than they are to the church and they are to Jesus. But Jesus is the one we want people to be loyal to, isn't it? Will it be good for Jesus and His church for this person to lead my team and serve over in that team? If it will, then Jesus is the one who claims my loyalty and not my particular ministry. Even if it means that my team suffers for a bit, we want to be more loyal to Jesus than we ever are to our little part of church. Often in churches... We're tempted to feel loyalty to one leader over another, aren't we? How many churches have you heard of that have split right down the middle between the senior pastor and the youth pastor, or the assistant pastor, or the morning pastor and the evening pastor, and both of the leaders gather their troops, both of them badmouth the other, and often the church is torn straight down the middle as half of them go off and start a new church somewhere else and, and these guys stay behind. It's pretty much always a disaster because that new church hasn't been started in order to reach the suburb for Jesus. It hasn't been started out of great motives. It hasn't been started out of gospel ambition. It's been started out of bitterness and it's started defining itself over and against that other group. It's almost always an unmitigated disaster. Can I say, this is one of those areas where I am so encouraged by all of our staff. God's blessed us with an incredibly godly bunch of people. You know, there is not one single person 
on our senior staff team who I wouldn't trust my life to, who I wouldn't trust my kids to. The MTSs, they're a bit dicey, but the senior one, no. <laughs> I never question, I never find myself questioning the loyalty of that senior staff team. Because they're all completely committed to Jesus. They're completely committed to what Jesus is doing and to our church. And so I know, as long as I'm com completely committed to Jesus and our church, they're with me. I also know, the minute I stop being committed to Jesus and loyal to Jesus, they'll pull me up. That's the best kind of loyalty in the world, isn't it? And the same thing is true of our elders and our advisors. God has been incredibly kind to us. If you've been in churches for a long while, you will see how very blessed we have been. Can I say to you, make sure you don't inadvertently divide the team by forming a little group of loyal followers around one of the staff. Make sure you value the team's loyalty. Make sure you don't complain to one member of staff about another one and put a division between them. If you have a problem with a member of staff, go to that one. Don't create loyalty, that, no, don't create disloyalty that Jesus, and, and break what Jesus has done. Because we have the rare privilege of having the senior leadership team that we do. One may, way, though, you may feel a pull of loyalty is when you see one of our leaders, maybe it, it could be a staff member, it could be an elder, it could be a growth group leader, it could be one of our kids' workers, when you see them doing the wrong thing. That is, you may see them commit a sin. And you know that someone really ought to be told about this. You know that someone really ought, in someone who's higher up, really ought to be told about it, but you feel a loyalty to that person and you feel like you should keep it to yourself. Don't. Never keep sin quiet. Your loyalty is to Jesus, so do the right thing. It's especially important when it comes to the safety of vulnerable people in our church, isn't it? People who can't necessarily stand up for themselves. This is one of the big reasons why pedophiles weren't reported in other churches. People felt a misguided loyalty to the person instead of their loyalty to Jesus. That person didn't die for you. That person, you weren't baptised into their name. Your loyalty is to Jesus. And so if you see sin, speak up. Take it seriously. Lots of us in the last few months, a whole bunch of people, almost, I think it's even more than half the people who are in ministry teams, in the last three months have been asked to do safe ministry training. You know, you, you get an email and if you don't answer the email, you get another email. And if you don't answer that, you get a phone call saying, we need you to do the safe ministry training. It's not about jumping through hoops. This is crucial for us to remind us that we don't turn a blind eye to sin for the sake of loyalty. Be very wary in church whenever anyone calls for your loyalty. Be very wary if anybody ever makes you feel disloyal because you're doing something that you think Jesus would want you to do. If someone can't persuade you with reasons from the Bible, if someone has to lean on loyalty to convince you, you can be almost certain 
they're asking you to compromise your loyalty to Jesus. And don't do that. Because loyalty to Jesus is what Paul calls us to in this passage. In fact, what Paul calls us to be is to be perfectly crafted by Jesus. Have another look in verse 10 again. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there may, may be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. See that phrase at the end there, perfectly united? Maybe a better way of saying that or translating it would be perfectly crafted. Paul wants us to be perfectly crafted in mind and thought. Have you ever watched a, a great craftsman make something? I remember a few years back watching the craftsman who built our kitchen work for a Saturday and a Sunday while I was there and he was meticulous. Every single joint fit perfectly together. Every measurement was perfect to the millimetre. And the whole thing, he, he was an artisan. And in fact, artisan is the word Paul uses here. He says, I want you to be perfectly artisaned. We don't have a verb for it, but they did. I want you to be perfectly artisaned. I want you to be crafted in your mind and thought. And again, he's playing on the idea of tearing. The Corinthian church were being torn apart by these divided loyalties. They were being ripped to bits. But Paul says, no, I want you to be a perfectly crafted whole. And of course, the idea of being crafted suggests what? A craftsman. It suggests the artisan who builds it, who is Jesus. Instead of following different leaders, and some of us believing and teaching this, and some of us believing and teaching that, Paul wants Jesus to craft our minds. Paul wants Jesus to craft our speech and our beliefs. So if you look there in verse 10, God wants us to agree with one another. But it's not the kind of agreement where we all get together and we all decide what we want to believe, where we all vote on what we want to believe and we come to a common mind that way. No, we agree because we all agree with Jesus. God wants us to have Jesus' way of thinking. He wants us to have Jesus' mind and Jesus' teaching. We speak Jesus' words to each other and that's what we want to be here at Hunter Bible Church, isn't it? We want to be a church that agrees with one another, not because we happen to like each other or because we're afraid of conflict. No, because we've all let Jesus shape our minds and our thoughts and our words. You know, this is actually one of those areas where it's actually kind of helpful being an independent church, isn't it? Because as a church, we don't have to be loyal to a denominational line. Because when we think about something like baptism or, or whatever it is, we don't have to follow the Anglican line or we don't have to follow the Baptist line. We can ask, well, what do we think Jesus' mind is on this? And we can go and do that. That is, we're free from being loyal to a denomination. That's a wonderful blessing. But on the flip side, it's an awful lot of exhausting hard work. See, the local Presbyterian church, they don't actually have to think very deeply into every topic like baptism or the Lord's Supper or music or kids' ministry or eldership in the church or discipline or the role of men and women. They don't have to think through all of those things because their denomination will often do it for them and create a policy and they just follow that. But we have to do all of that thinking for ourselves. We've had to work out our policy over the last 20-odd years on baptism. 
and on the Lord's Supper and on the roles of men and women. And some of those things are really easy to do because the Bible talks a lot about them. It's really easy for us to work out what we think about the resurrection. Dave read it for us earlier. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Bible talks about Jesus' resurrection a lot. Of course Jesus rose physically from the dead. Other topics in the Bible aren't so easy because the Bible speaks a lot less about them. You'd be surprised how little, for instance, the Bible speaks about baptism. Outside of the Gospels and Acts, where baptism is usually just described, we're told it happened, outside the Gospels and Acts, baptism is only mentioned 14 times in the New Testament and six of them are in this passage. There's not actually heaps of teaching about baptism in the New Testament and so it can be really hard work to get clear on what we believe as a church. And that's where loyalty can be a really dangerous thing. Because if I come from an Anglican background, I'm going to be tempted to be loyal to that Anglican background or I'm going to be in reaction against it. And if I'm from a Baptist background, I'm going to be tempted to be loyal to that or I'm going to be in reaction against it. And really all of us were actually most tempted to be loyal to my own preference. Here is what I know to be right. And we're all tempted not to budge and not to listen and to start fights and to gather my tribe around me and talk to this person and this person and this person. You agree with me, don't you? And potentially tear the church down the middle. Be very careful not to tear Jesus' church. When Paul comes back to this topic, he circles back to this topic in chapter 3. In verse 17, do you know what he says? The church is God's temple. And anyone who destroys God's temple will be destroyed by God. We're playing with the temple of God. When we have disagreements... The thing not to do is stand on our loyalty, be loyal to our tradition and gather loyal people around us. No, Paul calls us to be perfectly crafted in mind and thought and speech. We've got to go back to the Bible and we've got to be loyal to Jesus' thoughts and Jesus' teaching. And so you mightn't particularly like what I had to say about baptism a bit earlier. That's okay, you don't have to like it. You don't even have to agree with me. But you do have to put aside your loyalty to the tradition you came to and humbly come to the Scriptures. Open your Bible. Let Jesus shape your thinking. And I have to do exactly the same thing. Not just with baptism, but with every single topic. With the meaning of the cross. With the role of men and women. With how we do singing. And how we go about pointing elders and leaders. In all of these things, we have the freedom and the burden to put aside our loyalties and be crafted by Christ. As your pastor, the one thing I will never call you to do is be loyal to the Hunter Bible Church line. I'll never call you to, to be Hunter Bible Church, to be loyal to Hunter Bible Church, because this is just the way we do it. I'll ask you to come back and ask what Jesus teaches. And I will ask you to kind of trust and respect that we have thought things through a bit as well. As the shepherd of our church, I am going to stand before Jesus for what 
we teach and for what we believe in a way that no one else in our church will and I take that really seriously. Seriously enough to have thought through everything that we do and so when you challenge, try and do it respectfully and do it in such a way that you talk to the right people. Don't go gathering support amongst your friends, don't go spreading discontent, don't tear Jesus' church but challenge away. Come and challenge. Open the Bible. And when Jesus has a different mind to mine, I promise you, I will repent. And I will change. Loyalty is a powerful thing, isn't it? It's a dangerous thing when it's misplaced. But when our loyalty is to Jesus, that's when Jesus crafts a really beautiful church that actually reaches the world around us. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you that you have created us relationally. We thank you that you've made us to love people and to feel a loyalty and we thank you for those people who we look back in our lives and they have been so loyal to us. They stood by us when everyone else turned away. And they strengthened us when we were at our weakest. But we've also seen loyalty do tremendous damage. We've seen churches split apart. We've seen lives ruined by people who have misplaced loyalty. And so we pray that our loyalty would be to Jesus. We pray especially that as a church we would let Jesus craft our thinking and our minds and our speech. Please give us the humility to keep coming back to his word, to put aside what we believe, to be faithful students of your word. Please craft our minds and our thoughts and we pray that you would lead us to be very careful before we ever tear the church. Father, thank you so much for the leaders that you've given us, for elders and a staff team who really are loyal to Jesus. We thank you for the peace that you've given us over so many years in our church and we tremble to think that we might damage that. And Father, we pray that as people look at our church from the outside, they will see a beautiful unity. Not the unity of agreement or conflict avoidance, but the unity of Christ's mind at work living among us. Amen.